Today's scripture reading comes from Esther chapter 9, verses 20 to 28. It can be found on page 494 of the Red Pew Bible. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near Ambal to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when the sorrow was turned into joy and the morning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for the ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur, because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of poems should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading that for us, Brooklyn. Let's pray, shall we? God of our joy, we are thankful for your word read for us this morning, which sets our hearts afire just a little bit more this morning. We're thankful for the gift of your spirit, which speaks through your word into our lives and into our community. And we're thankful for the story of Esther, this simple story of ordinary people that your actions are woven so deeply into and that show us something true of Advent and of how you work in the world. We pray that you would open this story to our imaginations once more this morning, that you would speak to all of us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. We see in this story of Esther a rich variety of reversals and apparent errors, misunderstandings. There's a genre of drama that this book really falls quite neatly into called comedy of errors. This genre is just filled with misunderstandings, sudden turnarounds, mistakes which really drive the plot forward. 
dramatic irony where the readers and observers, where you and I know something that the characters just haven't figured out yet. We know more than they know. You, of course, know this trope from movies and television. Somebody walks into a room at just the wrong moment and their mind imagines something and the other people say, it's not what you think. And we, of course, know it's not what they think, but they don't. And that's the whole rest of the episode or rest of the movie sorting out that trouble. Let's consider this story together. There are two feasts which supplant Vashti as queen. And then there are two other feasts which secure Esther and undo Haman. There's Haman's grandiose description of how the king should honor the man that surely must be him. And then we know what's coming. He has to parade his nemesis around in precisely the way that he described. He builds a gallows for Mordecai, and those gallows are his own fate. And perhaps this is the most strange of them all. He is actually and finally sentenced to death for a crime he didn't commit. For the only crime that he didn't actually commit. The king thinks that he is assaulting and molesting the queen when he is really begging for his life. What a strange, strange story. And these are only a handful of all the many repetitions in this story. It seems that almost everything that happens once will happen again. This time, though, to set things right. And as we've been unpacking this together over the last few weeks, we've acknowledged that while any one of these things could just seem like a random coincidence, all of them put together really feels like an impressive display of God's acting through the lives of ordinary people in a time of great trouble. Despite all of these reversals of God, it is still a time of great trouble for Esther and her people. Xerxes is by no means a kind or benevolent king. Let's not fool ourselves. He is ambivalent at best, just signing genocidal orders without even knowing the people that he is condemning. And he is ruthless at worst. These people are still the children of captives brought into a foreign land. And while their lives are safe for the time being, who knows what new careless order the king could approve? What new evil is lurking just in the wings that even Haman could not have seen coming? I think this kind of pessimistic yes, but attitude is the way that we often see things in our lives and the world. Good news is too often tempered by the ever-looming realities of the larger narrative of our world. A narrative which we are perpetually being told is one of great dismay and hopelessness, of wars and famines and environmental crises we have plenty of reasons to be troubled. And so even good news is short-lived for us before that shadow of the everything else comes in and sets itself on our lives again. In this season of Advent, we have been practicing lament, practicing recognizing the things that we see wrong in the world and expectantly waiting for God to step in and to set things right again. And at the same time, we've been reading the story of Esther 
to learn how to live into seasons of hope when the world may turn to despair. It's in this strange tension that today's sermon lies. The tension between the realities which are, that we know to be true, the realities of deep darkness and hopelessness in this world, and the reality of things that are yet to be in the kingdom of God. Today, we will look at joy in the waiting, joy in the silence and the stillness and the darkness, joy before everything is solved, when only just the most pressing weight has been lifted off of our shoulders, but we may still feel crushed. Joy because we sense that God is moving. We feel a change in our bones and our hearts ache at the verge of receiving everything which they have ever desired. Joy wells up within us because we remember the reason for our hope. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis writes, All joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or for what is still about to be. How true especially this is of our Advent joy. It's joy not for what we possess, but a joy in remembering what God has done and looking forward to what God has promised will be. As Mordecai said in today's reading, the Jewish people's sorrows were turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. By the way, If you're still uncertain about whether or not there is implication of God in these words of Mordecai and in their actions, he is essentially quoting Psalm 30 verse 11 when he says this. Psalm 30 says, You turn my wailing into dancing, you remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. Mordecai knows that God is in this. We know that God is in this. Sorrow has become joy. Mourning has become dancing and celebration. In the shadow of the Persian Empire, a people held captive rejoice. Joy wells up inside of them, not because everything is fixed, but because something is fixed. God has delivered them from the palms of their enemies yet again. God is still with them. God will still make good on his promises. Scattered in a foreign land, a new religious festival is established. Purim is born. It is a day of feasting and gladness, a day for giving gifts and of charity to the poor. It is celebrated in those ways even today. Mordecai's admonishment that it should never fail to be celebrated has held true all these many years. During Purim in homes, children dress up as biblical characters, much like our children did for us today. And they retell this story of Haman and Esther and Mordecai. Adults enjoy wine, plenty and plenty of wine, and they celebrate and they rejoice. In synagogue, the book of Esther is read out loud, and no matter where the name name of Haman is heard, Booze and rattling drown out his name because this is not a day to remember the name of Haman. This is a day to remember the actions of God, 
The lot was cast to crush and destroy the people of Israel, and that lot brought them their deliverance. But we still have a really hard question to answer, don't we? Why celebrate? Why celebrate in the midst of continued suffering and sorrow? Why celebrate in the waiting? Doesn't that seem premature? Can't celebration wait until all the Jews are back in Israel again? Or for us, can't we hold off celebration until Jesus comes back and the world is set right? Why do we celebrate when everything still seems so dark? The truth is that joy and celebration allow us to hold on to hope when despair would have won out long ago. Joy for even the smallest glimpse of what God is doing continues to tide us over until we have the fullness of our joy, even Jesus Christ. Until that time, we should celebrate every opportunity we get. But I'm not sure that we do. Jean Vanier, the Canadian theologian and philosopher who founded the L'Arche Communities, wrote this of celebration. The poorer people are, the more they love to celebrate. The festivals of the poorest people in Africa last for several days. They use all their savings on huge feasts and beautiful clothes. These feasts nearly always celebrate a divine or religious event. These are sacred occasions. In richer countries, we have lost the art of celebrating. People go to movies and watch television or have other leisure activities. They go to parties, but they do not celebrate. Isn't that interesting? The, the, de the more desperate the circumstances, the deeper the joy. The more hopeless the surroundings the more full the celebration. It's true of our church that we need to practice lament. For most of us, that isn't a natural posture of our hearts, but we practice it to become familiar with sorrow so that we can know joy more fully. Growing up, holidays were always a really big deal at home. It didn't really matter much what the holiday was. It was always a good excuse for my mom to give us gifts and to celebrate and to take a break from the exhausting routine of three jobs and three kids that was her story for so long. That's really still her story. But Christmas, Christmas was a whole other level. My mom is a Christmas addict by her own confession, and Christmases were always over the top and ridiculous. This was the celebration of celebrations in our home. And as my siblings and I have grown up, we have urged our mom repeatedly to just calm down a little. We're not children anymore, we insist. It's time. We can just have a quiet Christmas a nice family dinner and little gifts for each other. That's all we really want. Needless to say, this idea has never gained much traction with my mother. I think I'm coming to understand why. 
She is celebrating in a way that I haven't learned to do yet. And in this celebration, there is a taste of something bigger and better that we look forward to beyond Christmas, toward that joy that Jesus promises is just around the corner. Another reason why we celebrate is that it brings people together, even in the midst of trouble. It forges community in a way that nothing else really can. Celebration presents new opportunities for a scattered diaspora people to enter into relationship, to come together with a common story and a common practice, to find meaning in each other and not just isolation anymore. Consider everyone that today's reading said joins in the Purim festivities. It says the Jews established and accepted as a custom for themselves and their descendants and all who joined them. A new community is being built in celebration. God is knitting people together with joy. Purim is actually part of a very rich tradition of celebration even celebration in troubled times. The festival of Passover was established during the Exodus, and it was expected to be celebrated even during the 40 years wandering in the desert. And I imagine that every year in that desert, just about when people were ready to start grumbling again and talking about how great Egypt was, they had to celebrate Passover. And they had to remember what God had done for them. They had to eat the bitter herbs and remember the bitterness of their slavery. They remembered their deliverance and joy followed. And they look forward again to the promised land that God was leading them to. Celebration has always been a way that God has desired his people to know his goodness. In Deuteronomy 14, the Israelites are told to tithe. And I know you're already wondering, what's that got to do with celebration? But this tithe might surprise you. They're told that at the end of the year, a tenth of all that they have is used to throw a party. The text actually says, spend the money on whatever you wish, ox, sheep, wine, strong drink, or whatever you desire. You shall eat there in the presence of your God you and your household rejoicing together. On the third year, the money went to the temple, of course. But two out of every three years, the tithe was a party that you threw. A tenth of your income going towards a party. I'm still just a student, but I know if I spent a tenth of everything I get in a year to throw one party, that would be quite the party. I would have a lot of fun, and you guys would too, I'm sure. That's a good way to remember how God has blessed us. That is a good, tangible way to see God's blessings in our lives. And I'm sure the joy that party had would spill over into the next year as we continued to wait for God's provision. This story of Esther, of sorrow turning to joy, even though there's still reason for sorrow, It shows us something profoundly true of how God works in the world and how God works in our lives and really who God is. God rejoices every time something is set right. 
The smallest thing is set right, and God breaks into laughter. He doesn't reserve his joy for that day when everything's set right. He's happy that something is better. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells us that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who don't need to. Heaven isn't holding its breath. Heaven isn't waiting until everybody figures it out. One is enough for a party. One is enough because it's a sign of things to come. Last week, we experienced the joy of celebrating as a community that Hanin and Yusuf, our sponsored family, have made it to Canada. We rejoice over one family out of danger and uncertainty. We're not ignorant of the fact that so many more are still waiting. We know that. But we rejoice with the one because it is good news still that they are here with us now. That's good news worth celebrating, and it reminds us that one day all will be safe, that God is still working in the midst of this story too. God's work is not always obvious to us, but though its fulfillment lingers, we wait for it. We see the patterns, the rhythms of Esther's story, and we know that God is still subverting the plans of the powerful and raising up the meek. He's working in ways that defy even our best logic. Death is overcome by death? To be the greatest, you have to become the least? And nobody Israelite woman becomes queen of Persia and saves her people at a time like that. Haman is hung on his own noose. These are backwards. These are abnormal. These are the realities of the kingdom of our God. Because these are the ways that God operates, we know that celebration is the core of God's kingdom. In Matthew 22, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. There's a party at the center of it. The kingdom of heaven is a good celebration. Jesus goes on to say that he set, the king sends his servants out with new instructions. The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And his servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. The kingdom of heaven has a king. And that king is very concerned about a party, very concerned about celebrating with people, about celebrating with us. We look forward to the day when we will enjoy that wedding feast of the kingdom of God. But until that day, we look for the little hints that God is preparing it. We see Haman's downfall, and we find joy while we wait for the downfall of all who are like him. We meet the arrival of one refugee family with great celebration and long for the day when no one will be displaced by war anymore. We mark the birth of our Savior and we find joy until he comes again. 
We eat the bread and we drink the wine. And we have joy as we sample what God has promised is coming to us. Brothers and sisters, joy carries us through the hard times. Celebration reminds us of the good that we have known and reassures us of the good that is yet to come. So we celebrate. We celebrate together because we've been waiting. We've been watching. And we've been remembering. And there seems to be some fresh movement of God around us. Some new thing that God is doing here, in this place, and in our lives. And that thing is good. And it is worth celebrating and rejoicing over. And hoping that what is about to come is everything that we've been longing for. That God is about to change the world forever. Alleluia. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. God, you work in strange ways. Strange ways that we don't understand and we can't expect. And so in the midst of a broken world, we shout for joy and we rejoice. In the middle of uncertainty and strange times, we trust that you are continuing to be the good God that you have always been. We watch and we wait for signs that you are turning this world around, that you are building your kingdom one life at a time one new relationship at a time, one good party at a time. We thank you that you are a God of joy and celebration and party, and we pray that you would help us to live into that. Make our hearts hearts of joy this season, we pray. Amen.